If you have your Bibles, please open them to Luke chapter 18. Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. And we're going to be listening as the Lord teaches us on the subject of prayer. Let's read this passage together. Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to hear your teaching on prayer, we confess that we cannot hear this teaching apart from prayer. We confess that we are completely dependent upon you even during this time for your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to receive Christ's words that we may be changed. So we acknowledge this dependence upon you and we invite you to come and be our teacher And we pray that Christ may be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was really born out of a time of evaluation and reflection of my own Christian life. And I've been a Christian for almost 20 years now, which means I guess I'm a teenager now in the house of God. And I've been looking back on the last uh, 20 years of how I've lived my Christian life and been giving thanks to God for his grace, but also wondering if there's anything that I've done over the last 20 years that I would want to do differently, that if I could live my Christian life over, is there anything that I'd want to change? And as I reflected on this, one thing came back loud and clear in my own heart and that is that if I could do one thing differently in my Christian life I would want to pray more. That if I could live my Christian life over I would want to rely more upon God through the agency of prayer and rely less upon my own wisdom, my own talents, my own abilities. If I could do it all over, I would pray more, um, even if it meant doing other things less. I would pray more and worry less. I would pray more and plan less. I would even pray more and work less. Because the Lord is the one who gives fruit to work. I would pray more and I would even study the word less because the study of the word is only fruitful when it is done in the atmosphere of prayer. And so if I could live my Christian life over, this is one thing I'd want to do differently. I would want to pray. I would pray more for my wife and that God would help her, and that God would grow her. I would talk to her less about how she needs to change and talk to God more on her behalf and ask him to change her. I would pray more for my children. I would pray more with my children. 
I would correct them less and I would ask God more to change their hearts because only God is the one who can change their hearts. I would pray more for people, uh, both believers and unbelievers, and I would pray more with people, um, especially when they ask for prayer. Instead of saying, well, I'll pray for you later, I would just say, let's just stop and pray together and not be afraid to pray with people. So I look back on my Christian life and see a lot of prayerless ministry, prayerless study, prayerless planning, prayerless decisions. And if I could do it over, I would want to pray and rely on God through prayer. Now obviously, um, none of us can live our Christian lives over and we need to be careful with this because God uses even our weaknesses and our our failures as part of his sovereign plan and he works it all out for his glory and for our good. But brothers and sisters, I would want you to be reminded this day that prayer does matter. I would want you to be reminded this day that prayer does make a difference. That prayer does change things, that God does answer prayer, that God does hear prayer, that God is listening to our prayers. We are not just passing time. We are not just mouthing words. We are not just adding decorations to a Christian life. Prayer changes our lives and other people's lives. Prayer, God changes hearts through prayer. And God grants us grace through prayer that we would not receive if we do not pray. James 4.3 puts it bluntly, you do not have because you do not ask. James says to us that there are things in your lives that you would have had if you had asked. But because you did not ask, you do not have. And there are things in the future in your life that you would have and you will have if you ask. But if you do not have, you will not receive. There are things that God only graciously gives to us through the means of prayer. And he does not give to us these things through any other means. And the reason why you do not have is because you do not ask. This is a concern for me as a pastor, is that I think many of us have fallen into the error of practical fatalism. And what fatalism is, is it's a misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. Fatalism is this idea that, well, God is sovereign, And so he has this plan, and so he's just going to work it out, and there's nothing that's going to change what he's going to do, and so prayer doesn't matter. Prayer doesn't change anything, because what is going to be is going to be. And so my prayers don't change anything. They just kind of, our decoration for my Christian life. And I would just encourage you, brothers and sisters, that this understanding is not biblical. It is not true. Jesus emphasizes time and time again that prayer changes things. And yes, God is sovereign. And at the same time, our prayers make a difference in how 
those two truths harmonize with each other, I don't know. It's in the mystery of God's will how he works all that out. But what I do know is that Jesus tells us over and over again that if we pray, God will answer. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. All those verbs are in the present continual tense. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking and it will be given to you. You will find. The door will be opened. Jesus holds out this promise that God answers prayer. And he invites us to come and to test God's truthfulness and his faithfulness to his word and to ask and to seek and to knock. And he promises us that if you pray, God will answer. How that harmonizes with God's sovereignty, I don't know. I do know that prayer makes a difference. When someone gets saved, did that person get saved because they were elect before the foundation of the world? Or did they get saved because we prayed for them? And the answer is yes. They were saved because they were chosen by God in his sovereignty to become one of his children and they were saved because we prayed for them, we asked, we sought, we knocked and the door was opened. Prayer makes a difference. Prayer changes lives and if I could just do my Christian life over, I would just want to take God's promises because I see there were many times where I did not have because I did not ask and I would just put him to the test and say God you have given to me this promise and you are true and I'm asking and I'm seeking and I'm knocking because you have said that you will not turn me away Hebrews 4 16 calls us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews says that to us as Christians, God's throne is a throne of grace. It is a throne of unmerited favor. And he says that because of Christ's perfect work on our behalf, that we can come with confidence and with boldness and know that the Father will hear us and we will receive, literally in the Greek, timely grace. Not just grace in general, but grace, the exact specific dimensions of grace that we need at this exact moment. We will receive it if we pray. Jesus emphasizes time and time again that prayer does change things. He says in Matthew 21, 21, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And we look at that and say, no way, Jesus. You don't mean what you're saying. And then he goes on and says, verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Mark eleven twenty four. whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. John 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In John 16, verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Over and over and over again, the Bible holds out these great and precious promises, inviting us as God's children to come and to ask and to seek with the promise that prayer does matter. Prayer does change things. Prayer does make a difference for time and for eternity. And that the greatest way to change your spouse is to pray. The greatest way to change your children is to pray. The greatest way to change the church is to pray. The greatest way to minister to unbelievers is to pray. And yet, I look at my life and I see how seldom do I pray. And I know that I pray, but what I mean by that is how seldom do I pray believing that this prayer is going to make a difference? How seldom do I pray believing that God really does hear this prayer and that God will answer how often do I kind of give God an out by praying for things that really, they're going to happen whether God intervenes or not, so I don't have to be disappointed if he doesn't answer. Instead of putting these promises to the test and praying as if my prayer really matters. One Bible teacher calls this Praying with prayer. That there's prayerless praying. And if you, if, you, if you try to pray before, you know what he's talking about. You can pray without really praying. You can just say words and it sounds nice, but it isn't an expression of a heart that believes in the promises of God and in God's grace to us in prayer. And so prayer does make a difference. And God does answer prayer. And prayer does move the hand of God. Yet at the same time, let me just kind of bring this down to where we live a little bit. And let's just confess that on a day-to-day basis, sometimes it is the most difficult thing in the world to pray. Let's just be real and honest with each other and just confess that prayer is it's difficult to pray I mean it's difficult for me to pray I know it's difficult for you to pray Alexander White said if you want to humble any man about a spiritual life ask him about his prayers it is sometimes the hardest thing in the world to pray I would say that it's easier to serve than to pray. I would say that it's easier even to study than to pray. It's easier to counsel than to pray. It's easier to answer emails or to plan ministries or to plan programs than to give yourself to prayerful prayer. Sometimes prayer is just the most difficult thing 
in the world. I mean, we live in a world of distractions. I have four children, and they're all loud. And um, they're great children. But those of you who have children know that how hard it is to have a devotional life when you have kids in the house. Sometimes I think my children strategically plan their fights to be right at the time when I'm starting to pray. They're like, hey, dad's praying, let's fight and make each other cry. Because so many times, you know, prayer sometimes it's like starting an old engine. You kind of have fits and starts and then you don't know what you're saying. Then you finally get going and you're launching into the glory of God and the kingdom of God and missions and, and you're just taking off and that's when my kids, they love to just start their fight right then. And someone's stolen someone else's Legos and someone's taken my daughter's dog and thrown it up on the bookshelf and she's crying and I gotta go out and leave the glory of God and the kingdom of, of the world and, and referee this fight and wipe the tears away and climb up and get the dog from the top of the bookshelf and everyone okay okay you guys just just you know watch a video so I can pray and I time I get back I'm mad and I'm angry at these at these kids and and where was I and it's difficult to pray Paul Miller in his book a praying life writes this He says, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. He says, we are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. You ever feel that way? We're just so busy doing things, running from here to there, and then when you sit down to pray, your mind is racing, your body's not used to being still, you can't sit still enough to focus on prayer, you're just so busy, it's so hard for us to pray. He says, we in American culture prize accomplishments and production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless. And it does at times. We're just wasting time. There's so many things to do. Every bone in our bodies screams, get to work. When we aren't working, we are used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, and cell phones make free time as busy as work. When we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. We're exhausted by the pace of life, and so we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. If we try to be quiet, we are assaulted by what C.S. Lewis called the kingdom of noise. Everywhere we go, we hear background noise. If the noise isn't provided for us, we can bring our own via iPod. And I read that and just thought, man, guilty as charged. I mean, I have an iPod, I have an iPhone, I have a laptop, and I just got an iPad. And sometimes they're all on at the same time. And I'm getting texts, and I got Gmail, and Google Reader, and Twitter, and Facebook, and all of these things can be great encouragements for me to pray because people do post their prayer requests online, and all of these things can make it very difficult to pray. I mean, it's just so easy to get distracted. I'm praying and asking for God's will to be done and then, ooh, like, there's something on the internet or two-for-one special at Chick-fil-A. Man, I could take the kids and where was I? I was just praying. I, I forgot what I was praying about. Or I'm praying for the church and I'm wrapped up in the glory of God and the church and I get a status update. and Someone posted something really funny and I want to like that status update and post another funny comment on that. Hope somebody likes my comment of that <laughs> status update. And I'm getting all these red things on my Facebook and ooh, things are really cool and happening and, and we're just so distracted. And it's just hard for us to pray. 
And it's hard for us to pray with prayer. And so I think what we need as a church and what I need is encouragement. We just need encouragement. We just need to be reminded that prayer matters, that God is listening. And we need encouragement to persevere in this. And encouragement that God even hears our distracted prayers. That God even hears our weak prayers. That God even hears our ADD prayers. Our short prayers that go off and and we don't know what we just said. The Bible says we don't pray as we ought. And I'm so glad that the, the Bible just says that because I know I don't pray as I ought. And yet God hears even my weak prayers. And we need encouragement to, to just persevere in this and to pray and to not get discouraged and to not feel like because God hasn't answered right away that maybe he isn't listening or that he's closed in his heart toward us. We need encouragement to keep on praying. And we need encouragement to weave prayer throughout our lives, not just put it as a part of life. You know, prayer is it's a walk with God. It's not just something you do that's really spiritual at a moment and then you kind of go and live your life. It's just, it's a walk with God. I mean, we pray for spiritual things and unspiritual things. We're, we're praying, Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. I mean, we pray for, for food and for groceries, for gas in our car and for electricity. We, 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Which means anything that I get anxious about is something that I can pray about. And I get anxious about a lot of things in a given week. I get anxious about a lot of dumb things in a given week. I'm anxious about my kid's soccer game. And I'm anxious about gas prices going up. And are we going to hit $5? And what's that going to do to our budget at home? And I get anxious about the kids are starting a new school in August and are they going to make friends? And I get anxious because my car is making this funny bumpy noise every time I go on the freeway. And what does that mean? And are we going to die the next time we go on the freeway? And I actually got that checked out and really did need new tires on the car. But I get just anxious about so many things. I'm anxious about this message. And is it going to make sense to anybody? Or am I just going to be talking and, and frustrating people because I'm just confusing them about the Bible? Just anxious about so many things. And, and God says, whatever you can get anxious about, you can pray about. Take all of those anxieties and worries and cast them at the feet of God through prayer. Because he cares for you. One thing I've learned is that when I lose my keys, instead of getting mad and anxious and yelling at my kids, where do you, where do you hid my keys? I can just pray. And I can ask God. God, can you just help me find my keys? Because I'm just tempted to get mad right now. And I know this is really small to you, but you know what? You're God, so everything is small to you. So I'm anxious about this, and I can pray about it because you care for me. Prayer is a walk with God through life. That we pray formally and informally. We plan long, extended times of prayer, and we just pray these short little prayers bitty prayers up to heaven. Lord, help me. Lord, I just, I don't know where my heart is. Lord, I'm struggling. Just help me. We can pray at our workplaces. We can pray at our schools. But we all need encouragement to pray. And so Jesus tells us this parable in Luke chapter 18. And he tells us this parable with this very specific purpose. Verse 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
Okay, the heart of Jesus behind this text is he doesn't want us to lose heart as Christians. He doesn't want us to lose heart because of our problems. He doesn't want us to lose heart because of our temptations. He doesn't want us to lose heart because of our trials or relational difficulties or or our lack of sanctification. Don't lose heart, Christian. Don't be discouraged. Instead, he wants us to pray and through prayer to not lose heart and to not be discouraged in our prayers. Even if it seems we're waiting a long time. I, I don't know, there are unbelievers in my life where I, just to be honest with you this morning, I've given up. I've just lost heart. I've just prayed for them for years and they just, they just don't want Christ. And Jesus is saying in this passage, Dan, don't lose heart. Keep praying. Keep lifting them up in prayer. Don't be discouraged. Even if it takes a while for God to answer. In this context, Jesus is talking about the second coming, his glorious return to earth. At the end of chapter 17, he describes his second coming. And then in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, he tells disciples how to live in light of the second coming. And he basically is saying in this passage, as you wait for Christ's return, the way that you look for Christ's return is you pray. You pray and you don't lose heart. And so he tells this real simple story, and I'll summarize it in three basic lessons Lesson number one we learn from this story is that God is not like an unjust judge. God is not like an unjust judge. Verse two, he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. We're here introduced to one of the main characters in the story. He is called here an unjust just, unrighteous judge in verse 6. This is a wicked man. This is an unsympathetic figure. Verse 2 says he neither feared God nor did he respect man. Those phrases are used in extra-biblical literature to describe a selfish person, a stubborn person, a cold-blooded heart. He is an unreasonable, selfish person who answers only to himself. And he knows this to be true about himself. In verse 4, he says, Self, I neither fear God nor respect man. So he knows this. He even has this sense of boasting that this is who he is. And this is one of the main characters in the story. He is an unjust judge. Now the key to understanding this parable is to see that this is not a parable of comparison. It is instead a parable of contrast. Most parables that Jesus told are parables of comparison. We learn what God is like by comparing him to a human figure. This parable is a parable of contrast. We learn what God is like by contrasting him with a human figure who is utterly unlike God. The contrast that Jesus makes in this parable is with the unjust judge and his heart, with the true and the living God in his heart. And what he's saying in this parable is look how much they're different. God is not like an unjust judge. Everything that this man is, God is not. This man has a heart of stone. God has a heart of compassion. This man is unfeeling toward any who would come. God is near to the brokenhearted and he hears the widow's cry. This man is the epitome of selfishness. God is the epitome of love. This man has a closed heart. God's heart is wide open to the most neediest of sinners. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is not like an unjust judge. The teaching of this parable is this, the contrast. If this selfish, wicked, hard-hearted man, this man whose heart is stubborn and closed to the poor, if this evil man will answer a person who comes to him and perseveres in her request, how much more will God, our Heavenly Father, answer us? The argument is from the lesser to the greater. If the unjust judge will give an answer, do you think that God, our Heavenly Father, will remain silent when we are his children and he is our Father? If you do not understand God's fatherly heart, if you do not understand that he is not like this unjust judge, you will be discouraged to pray. If when you pray you see a God who is reluctant to bless you, who is withholding blessing from you, who is looking on you with scorn and with disapproval, and who says you must attain to this level of spirituality before I will even hear your prayer, you will be discouraged and you will lose heart in prayer. The gospel says to us that Jesus has died for us and therefore God is not an unjust judge. He is a loving heavenly father. And we are to come as, as his children and receive his grace. You know, the other night I took my family to dinner and a movie. It's Tuesday night at the movie theater, they had a great discount ticket night. And so we said, let's go to the movies. And dinner was Panda Express. Uh, we ordered three two-item combos. Uh, Mina and I shared one, and then two two-item combos for the kids because they just you know they just eat they just they're locusts they just put food and it's gone. <laughs> and um, so I'm sitting there and I'm just feeding and just giving out the fried rice and chow mein and kung pao chicken and they're just consuming and. Jonathan just got braces, so he's eating a little slower than usual, but he's still going at it, and it's just gone. And we get done, and um, I said, all right, movie's starting in 10 minutes. Let's head over, and we we rush over real quick, and we get seated, and um, right when we get seated, my youngest daughter looks at me, and she's, she's totally sincere about this. She's not kidding at all. She looks me in the eye, and she says, Daddy, I'm hungry. <laughs> and um, I know what she's doing. I mean, she's, she's it's a different kind of hunger than dinner hunger. This is like popcorn hunger. It's like nachos hunger. She wants candy or Twizzlers or soda pop. I'm hungry. And I looked at her and I said, how can you be hungry? You just ate. It's two Adam combo. I just fed you. How can you be coming? And she's asking me for more. And um, if I were to look at that objectively, I would say, man, the audacity. <laughs> I mean, just how dare she ask me for more when I, you're, I just paid for your movie. I just bought you dinner. You're asking me for more. But this is the crazy thing about being a dad is that there is this weird, I mean, just God puts in you this, 
this insane kind of compassion, this soft spot in your heart for your children. And I found myself saying to my wife, should I buy her some popcorn? (laughs) Even though I knew that this is a completely unreasonable request. My heart was moved to like, maybe I'll, okay, maybe, yeah, you've been kind of good today. I'll, I'll, I'll give you some popcorn. And I was like, what am I saying? The insanity, the, being a father, you have this, this heart of flesh towards your children that you're just moved and you just want to, and they drive you crazy all day and at the end of the day, you just want to give them some ice cream and just, look, I'm your dad. And it's not a burden when you ask me. It's my joy and my delight to answer your requests. And God says to us, human fathers, if you, being sinful, have this kind of heart toward your children, if you, being the selfish, proud man that you are, will give your child popcorn when it's completely out of proportion, how much more Will God hear you and answer you when he is your heavenly father? Some of us, we just, we don't pray because we have an inaccurate view of God. We just don't see him as he is and as he is to be seen through the gospel. And so we see him as an unjust judge and our hearts grow discouraged in prayer. One of the things I realized with children is that they don't get discouraged about asking. I mean, I saw a little girl out there the other day on the patio, and her dad was talking and fellowshipping with someone and being wrapped up in, in fellowship, and this little girl was thirsty. And her dad was there, and, and um, she just was, I just watched her, because it was really funny, because she just kept saying, saying, Daddy, I'm thirsty. Daddy, I'm thirsty. Daddy, I'm thirsty. Daddy, I'm thirsty. And he's talking, you know, fellowshipping with Christ, you know, about Christ and spiritual things. Daddy, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm daddy. I'm. And she wasn't bothered or upset. Oh, he's, why isn't he asking? He, she's just like, well, he'll get around to it sooner or later because he's my dad. And sooner or later, he's going to hear me and then I'm going to get a drink. I think the 15th time she asked that she got lemonade. And, you know, she stopped asking because... And your children, they just ask. Adults don't ask. Adults, we do things by ourselves. Children ask. And if we see God as a heavenly father, not as an unjust judge, we will ask and we will not lose heart. Second lesson is that we are not nameless widows. The first lesson is that God is not an unjust judge. The second lesson is that we are not nameless widows. Verse 3, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So the first main character is the unjust judge. The second main character is the needy widow. I want to be real careful with this point because there is one similarity that we have with this widow. We, like her, are totally helpless and dependent. We need to ask because we have no resources in and of ourselves. The widow was the most helpless in Hebrew society and, and we are like her in that way in that we are needy and we come to God in need of help. But I want to remind you that this is a parable of contrast, not a parable of comparison. The key thing to note in this story is that when we come to God, the dynamics we experience are completely different from what this widow experienced. She was an unnamed widow. She was anonymous. She had no relationship with the judge. She had no reason to believe that the judge would actually answer her request. All she could resort to was her persistence, was her nagging, was her, her willingness to beat him down with her request until he, she finally exacted an answer. We are not unnamed widows in the sight of God. We don't come to God like this widow did. We don't need to nag him 
to bend his will, to bless us. We don't need to come and through pure repetition wear God out until he finally relents to bless us. No, we are always welcome and we are always embraced. And we come with a different dynamic than this widow did. R. Kent Hughes explains, says the parables, this parable's teaching has been often greatly misunderstood. Most people think that it teaches that feverish persistence in prayer is a virtue. Sermons have wrongly used this text to teach that we must frantically beg God to answer our prayers. This is not the idea at all. The parable of the unjust judge is a parable of contrast. The clear lesson of this parable is that God is not like the judge and we are not like the nameless widow. We are his chosen ones. We are God's elect. We are created in his image and redeemed by the Son of God. Because of who God is and who we are, there is no reason to frantically assault his door or nag him for a response. We persist in prayer, not because we have not yet gotten God's attention, but because we know he cares and will hear us. We are called to persist in prayer. But the dynamics of our persistence is different from the widow. God is not reluctant to bless us. We come trusting that our Father knows what we need. And if we, like that little girl on the patio, just keep asking 15 times, we can ask 15 times with joy in our hearts, knowing that He will when he sees best, answer us according to his wisdom. So the first lesson is that God is not like an unjust judge. The second lesson is we are not nameless widows when we come to God. And the third and final lesson from this parable is that our prayer is an expression of our faith in Christ. Our prayer is an expression of our faith in Christ. Verse six, Jesus wraps up his teaching on prayer by saying this, And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? As we noted at the the beginning, Jesus is speaking here of his second coming. He's instructing his disciples how they are to live as they patiently await his return. Jesus says here that God will give justice to his elect, and he's primarily referring to the time of Christ's return when Jesus will vindicate true believers and usher them into his kingdom. He says he will give justice to them speedily. We're reminded from this text that as we pray and as we don't lose heart in prayer, we are also praying for Christ to return. We are praying, Maranatha, O Lord, come. We are praying, Jesus, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And God says here that he will answer that request with the soon return of Jesus to this earth. And then Jesus ends his teaching with a very provocative question, verse 8. He says, nevertheless... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus returns to this earth, he asks this question, will he find faith? Will he find anyone believing? Now, I don't think Jesus asked that question because he didn't know the answer. I think Jesus knew that there's always a remnant of believers in every age of redemptive history and that there will be believers on the earth at the time of his second coming. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's provoking us to think. He's getting our attention. He's asking us to apply this question to ourselves. If Jesus were to come back, would he find this type of faith on the earth, faith that expresses itself in persistent prayer? Well, there's much that we can say about this statement. The one thing I want to highlight and to bring to your attention is just how carefully the question is worded in verse 8. In the context, it would make more sense if Jesus asked the question, 
when the Son of Man comes, will he find prayer on the earth? Because the whole parable has been about prayer. And the whole teaching has been about prayer. So why doesn't he say prayer? Instead, he asks the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And all I want you to see as we look at this passage is that there is a vital connection in this text between faith and prayer. Faith and prayer are so linked together that Jesus uses them almost interchangeably. That if we have faith, we will pray. And if we pray, it is because it is the expression of our faith in Christ. And God, brothers and sisters, the the application is this. We are not asking God to teach us how to pray. We are asking God to teach us how to pray as an expression of our faith. I mean, you can learn how to pray. And I can teach you how to pray. I can teach you the words and the mechanics and the different aspects of prayer. But that's not what we're asking God to do. We are asking God to teach us how to pray as an expression of faith in Christ. And the two are as different as they can be. You all know the difference between when you pray and when you pray with faith. You all know the difference between when you've gone to a prayer meeting or a care group and when we've prayed and when we've prayed with faith. You all know the difference between praying as a formality or as a ritual or praying words that are the expression of what we really believe in our hearts. What is our faith? We believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for our sins and who rose triumphantly from the grave. We believe that through his precious blood that we are forgiven of all our sins and we are reconciled to the Father through his completed work. We believe that in the miracle of salvation, God has adopted us into a spiritual family so that we are no longer children of wrath, but we are children of God in Jesus Christ. We believe that at the cross, all of our sins were placed upon Jesus at the cross and paid for in full. And that in this glorious exchange, all of Christ's righteousness has been given to us in our conversion. We believe that the Holy Spirit lives in us and fills us. We believe that God's throne to us is the throne of grace. We believe that if we ask, we shall receive. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door shall be opened unto us. We believe that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so out of the expression of all these truths that we believe, we pray. In prayer, that is an expression of faith, is different than prayer that is learned by rote. So, brothers and sisters, let us learn how to pray. Let us pray and not lose heart. Start where you are. For some of you, five minutes of prayer, that's all you can do without getting distracted. 
don't make any heroic commitments after hearing this sermon. God wants to meet you where you are. Start where you are. If five minutes is all you can pray, then pray five minutes and just be faithful with those. If that is the measure of faith that God has given to you, Pray those five minutes. I guarantee you, if you are faithful with those five minutes, you will begin to see that those five minutes are the most beautiful part of your day. They're the most peaceful, stress-relieving, joyful times of your day. And you, God, will put in your heart a desire to experience more of this grace in prayer. Start where you are. Be real and be yourself. Pray with the language of your own heart. The Puritans are great. The valley of vision is great, but none of us talk that way in real life. God doesn't want someone else's prayers. God wants your prayers. God is interested in your prayers. The mercy of God to be interested in my prayers. I listen to John Piper pray and I go, man, I could never pray like that. Sometimes I listen to Pastor James pray and I say, I could never pray like that. He just prays so well. I just say, James, can I just give you my prayer request? Because I think God's going to hear your prayers better and he's going to pray mine because you just pray so well. I say, I can never pray like that. The mercy of God, that God is interested in my prayers, my heart, my language, my weakness, my stuttering, halting prayers that are so distracted. Be real. Be yourself. Be encouraged that God even wants our messy prayers. He wants our distracted prayers. He is interested in our weakest prayers because he is our loving father. And let me encourage you with this. Don't try to clean up your act before you come to pray. I think one of the greatest hindrances in my life is that this feeling that I need to clean up my act before I come to pray. I need to get my life together. I need to have everything in a row that I'm dirty, I'm filthy, I'm struggling with sin, I'm struggling with trials, my faith is weak, so I can't pray now. I gotta wait until things are better spiritually before I can really pray. And God says to us in Hebrews 4, no, come to the throne of grace that you may receive grace and mercy in your time of need. If you're struggling with impurity, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're weak in faith, then what do you need? You need grace. Don't clean up your act before you come to pray. Pray and come to the throne of grace and let God's grace wash over you and let his grace clean you and sanctify you and strengthen you. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I would just encourage you in the similar way. Don't clean up your act before coming to Jesus. Come to Jesus with all your sin. Give him all your guilt and iniquity and receive his grace and his forgiveness because he died to save you from that sin. Come messy, come distracted, come weak, come dirty. Let us pray. Let us not lose heart so that if the Son of Man were to come today, he would say that he would find faith here on earth. Let's close our time in word of prayer. Our Father, what a privilege it is for us to be reminded of your grace toward us. Your merciful heart toward your children. We are your children. That's all we are. That's all we can bring to you is our weakness, our helplessness, our needs. We have nothing to give to you and yet you have everything to give to us. All we can do is receive. So we come as your children. We come because you have called us to come. We come because you have given to us these promises in your word. We believe your promises. We believe that these are true. So we come and we ask that you would do in our lives and in our church what we cannot do. You would bless us in ways that only you can do. We pray this knowing that, Father, 
You are not an unjust judge. You are our Abba, our Daddy, our Father. You are rejoicing in even these requests. So we thank you that we can come. We bless you for your grace. And we exalt your Son for all he's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.